for old folks. <laughs> like, like myself, I'm including myself in that, and I'll be back here. But we continue in Easter, and hallelujah, he is risen. Amen and amen. And today we're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about grace, and what a better thing to speak about any, any day of the week, but particularly during Easter, because everything that the Lord Jesus Christ affords us in his death, burial, his life, death, burial, and resurrection is a matter of grace. Amen? It's a matter of his undeserved merit and favor and love for us. And so the big idea I want us to walk away with, the main idea I want us to walk away with this morning uh, from this sermon is this, is that God grants us the most grace where the most is needed but the least is deserved. Amen? God grants us the most grace where the most is needed but the least is deserved. And I want to give a quick word of clarity about this. I am not assuming that anybody here believes this or will attempt this, but I just want to be clear because even Paul in the scripture addresses this, okay? What I am not saying is that we need to go out and try to be as least deserving as we possibly can for the grace of God, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying go out and sin and see how much grace you can muster up because you don't deserve it. That's not it, all right? Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. He said, should we sin more so that grace would increase? And his answer is absolutely not. Right? If your heart is for God, then you're seeking to please the Lord. And as anyone who seeks to please the Lord knows, sometimes you just don't. Sometimes you just mess up greatly. And those are the times when God extends grace to us way more than we could possibly deserve. Amen? And so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about his grace. And so we're coming from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. We will read this text, pray, and then we'll jump in. Um, if you're wondering where Pastor Drew is this morning, he is over serving at our sister church, Emmanuel Anglican Church on the east side in Decatur. He is uh, presiding over uh, communion there while the pastor is um, on sabbatical and so we'll probably he and I will probably be doing some switching out with that because the pastor will be gone for about six months so um, that's what's happening this Sunday so let's read uh, John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14 uh, we'll pray and then we'll jump in afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Galilee and it happened this way Simon Peter Thomas also known as Didymus Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom, loved, whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him, it is, heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped out into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, about 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples there asked, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. 
This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me this morning, friends. God, I stand before your people this morning in need of your grace. Lord God, to be able to proclaim your word with clarity, with conviction. And Holy Spirit, I need your grace that you would come and all that is proclaimed through my imperfect mouth, you would make effectual and effective in the hearts and the minds of every person present here this morning. Lord God, that you would help us be aware of our need for grace, but also, Lord God, be overwhelmed by your willingness to give it to us in abundance. I pray that not a single one of us leave here this morning, Father God, without grace, without a little more, or at least a little more knowledge of your love, your kindness, your desire for us, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise, Father, because indeed you are worthy. Be with our children, Lord God, that they may hear your word and that they may be encouraged and strengthened and, 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 and inspired and saved, Lord God, when the time comes. May the same even happen here today. We thank you for worship. We thank you for the opportunity to pour ourselves out to you in praise. Lord, would you please pour yourself out into us afresh through your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, uh, Philip Yancey, uh, the, the Christian author, I have a picture of that book, um, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells a story of a girl named Daisy. Has anybody read that book in here? Raise your hand if you've read that book. Amen. It's a good book. It's a good book. I'll do my best to tell this story. Philip Yancey is a fantastic writer and storyteller, so he may do it a little bit better, but I'll do my best to tell the story of Daisy. Daisy was born the, the second youngest of eight children in the Midwest to a blue-collar family right at the beginning of the uh, Great Depression. Daisy's family was relatively he healthy to begin with. Her father worked a blue-collar job. He brought the funds home to take care of the family. Mom stayed at home and took care of the children. And this was all until the Great Depression started to wane on the family financially. Over time, the father started to buckle under the pressure. He took up drinking. Soon his drinking got so bad that there wasn't enough money for him to support his habit and come home and support the family. And unfortunately, his habit won out. Not only was Daisy's father a drunk, but he was an angry drunk. And he was abusive. He beat his children and he beat his wife. Daisy recalls a time when her father kicked her younger brother across the linoleum floor as he huddled and cowled and tried to protect himself. Philip Yancey tells us that Daisy hated her father. She hated her father. One day, in a drunken rage, her father decided that he was fed up with his wife and told her that she had up until 12 p.m. the next day to leave and not come back. 
true to his word, when 12 p.m. came the next day, he went to her and said, hey, pack up your stuff. The children pleaded and clung to their mom, begged her not to leave, begged him to change his mind, but he was unrelenting. And at 12 p.m. that day, she took her bags, she walked out that door, and Daisy recalls watching her mom walk down the street and out of sight. Daisy hated her father. Over time, the children grew. Some went off to the military. Some just got jobs. Some got married and moved out. And it fell, the lot fell to Daisy to somehow remain with her father until she reached adulthood. But soon enough, she got married and she left as well. Well, drinking led her father to bottom out, found himself hungry and homeless, and he needed a meal. So he saw a Salvation, a, a Salvation Army post, and he went to the Salvation Army post looking for a meal. And he learned when he went there that in order to get the meal, he had to sit through a church service. So he said, well, I might as well. It probably wouldn't be a good idea to take these folks' food and not sit through the church service. So he's sitting in the church service, listening to the message, and the craziest thing in the world happened. It worked. He heard the message of the gospel, and he got saved. Radically so. In a moment, he gave up drinking, he changed his life, he started living for the Lord, and from that moment, he dedicated his life to finding each of his children and reconciling to them. Reconciling. And what was so amazing was that each and every child forgave him and accepted him back into their home and his family. Each and every child except one. Daisy. Over time, drinking caught up with the father. His liver began to fail. The rest of his body began to fail along with it. And he lived with a daughter who only lived one block up from Daisy. As long as he lay there in that house sick and dying, Daisy never once went to see the man. She walked by his house, went to the bus, went to work, went to the grocery store, never stopped to see him, not for a moment. As he lay on his deathbed with his children and grandchildren standing around him, a young girl walked through the door, and when Daisy's father saw him, she sprang, he sprang up from the bed, and he said, Daisy, Daisy, you finally come back to me. Philip Yancey tells us that nobody in the room had the heart to tell him that it wasn't Daisy. But for some reason, at some point, Daisy's heart had softened just enough to let her daughter go in and see her grandfather right before he died. Philip Yancey wrote that he so desperately wanted to be reconciled to his daughter that he hallucinated grace. He hallucinated grace. I try to tell that story without tearing up. It's really hard. But in our passage this morning, we find some men who so desperately needed grace in their life as well. This is Jesus' disciples, and they desperately needed grace. They desperately needed forgiveness from the one whom they betrayed, this Jesus, their Lord, their master, their dearest friend. And this passage tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, Peter and five of the, these disciples, they went back to the only thing they knew before Jesus called them, and that was fishing. And I like the way that John tells us, right? If you read it, 
in, in like the original language, the way it reads is really simple. They go, Peter goes, I'll go fishing. They go, we'll come. Almost as if they were just excited that somebody knew what to do because they had no idea what to do. And so they go fishing. And while they're fishing all night, they don't catch a single thing. And then about that time, Jesus appears on the shore. And although they don't recognize him, he asked them how the fishing was going that night. And of course, they say it's not going that well. They hadn't caught anything. So Jesus tells them to throw their nets on the right side, the other side of the boat. And when they did, they caught so many fish in that moment that their nets began to break. And John, recognizing that this was Jesus who had just performed this miracle, he looks at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, I think that I think that's Jesus. And I don't know about you, but for some reason, I feel like Peter is a lot like me. Right. His responses, the way he puts his foot in his mouth, the way he tends to to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, the way he tends to be kind of childlike and immature. It's a lot like me. You ever think nobody ever says, man, I'm just like John. You're, I'm just like the disciple Jesus. I'm just like I'm just like the disciple that Jesus loved, right? Because that's pride. That's kind of narcissistic, right? We see ourselves. I'm going to say this to you. I think I'm more like John than Peter, though. I think <laughs> some of you picked up on that. I was saying I'm a narcissist. That was the joke. But just like Peter, when John tells him this. I like how you read that Peter was actually naked, <laughs> and so he threw on some clothes, and then he jumps into the water. It seems like it's kind of backwards, right, that he would, but I think probably there was like an element of shame there. He wanted to say, oh, it's Jesus, cover myself, then jump in the water. But he jumps in the water, and he swims up to Jesus. Out of pure excitement, he swims up to Jesus. You can imagine how elated he is, but here's the question I asked myself when I was studying for the sermon. John tells us the beginning, right? that they had already seen Jesus how many times? How many times? Twice, exactly. He had already seen Jesus two times. Why did he respond this way on this third time? He had already seen him. Why this particular response at this particular time? Well, I think it's because up until this moment, Peter and his disciples were still trying to understand what these appearances of Jesus mean. I think that they were still trying to make sure that they were not hallucinating the grace they so badly desired. And so when Jesus performs this miracle, it makes it extremely clear to them that this is the Jesus who left them. This is the same miracle-performing Jesus who walked with them for the past three years. This encounter with Jesus had within it that significant grace, that reconciling power that they so badly desired. And so that when they saw the miracle, Peter was elated to know that this is the Jesus that he had been searching for. This is the Jesus who had died and himself was resurrected. And I think that this meant so much to Peter because as Drew told us last week, not just Peter, but the disciples, as Jesus told us, as, not Jesus, Drew is not Jesus, but as Drew told us last week, Peter wasn't the only one who deserted Jesus. Peter gets the bad rap because of what happened when he was at the fire with the servant girl, but all of the disciples deserted Jesus. All of them left Jesus when they when Jesus was arrested and given to the cross. 
And so Peter and all of the disciples are elated when they realize that this is the Jesus who once was dead and is now alive again. I think that when Jesus performed this miracle, it was a reminder of when Jesus called them to be, there, be, the, be his disciples at first. I think it was a reminder of the time that he called them to be one of his own. And what they're seeing in this experience is that Jesus still desires them to be his own. It's a reminder that Jesus still wants them to walk with him. He still wants them to be with him. And this is our first point this morning is that Jesus is still calling each and every one of us to be one of his own. Jesus is still calling us to be one of his own. And friends, I don't want to take for granted this morning, I'm going to step out and risk and make a big assumption here this morning, that there is somebody here, somebody here who is in need of this kind of grace. I'm going to assume that there's somebody here who this morning you're feeling like, you know what, I've done something so bad. I've been so bad. I've walked so far away from the Lord. If you only knew who I've been with, what I've been doing, what I've done, who I am. I bet that there's somebody here this morning thinking one of these things. And I want you to know that what Jesus is saying to you this morning is that he wants you to be his own. That he is still calling you to be his own. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. I want you to see in this story that there is no amount of sin or betrayal that Jesus does not have enough grace to forgive. And so if you're here this morning, brother or sister, I want you to know that today, 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 Jesus wants you. He's looking to you this morning. I say this morning so much, it never, it never hit me how much I say it. And it never hit me that it was a problem until I was speaking to these college kids at 9.30 p.m. And I said this morning about 800 times to the point where I just stopped saying whatever time of day it was and just tried to focus on not falling asleep standing up. It was rough, man. I, I, I keep, it was rough, man. And I think I'm still recovering from it. It was, I, I have a two-year-old and a newborn. I don't sleep great these days. And so trying to do something, trying to drive two hours to speak to kids at 9.30 p.m. And mind you, these kids are on, I said 11, they're on like 1,000. Like they still have about seven hours to go in their, in their night. And it was rough. It was rough. But I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that it is indeed morning. (laughs) With all of that said, friends, I want you to know that what's so amazing about grace is that the more you deserve it, the more Jesus will give it. I mean, the more you need it, the more Jesus will give it. The more you need it, the more Jesus will give it. The less you deserve it, the more Jesus will give it. And so when Peter and the disciples get to shore, Jesus is on the shore, and he says something to me that's pretty spectacular. Usually when something like this happens, he does a big miracle or something like that, Jesus would either go off to pray or he'll do what? He'll teach, right? He'll have something spectacular to say. That's not what happens after this miracle. What happens after this miracle? They get to the shore. Peter is excited. The disciples are excited. What does Jesus say? You hungry? Let's have some breakfast. 
Let's eat. And it seems so minuscule to us, right? It seems not as significant as the big lessons or whatever the thing may be, but I think that's because we've lost the significance of a meal here in America in 2022. We've lost the significance of sharing a meal. You see, in just about every culture in the world, especially during these days, sharing a meal with someone was extremely significant. It was the core. It was central to building healthy relationships with and outside of the family. And so when these men who so desperately desired to be reconciled to the Savior, to the Master, to the Lord that they betrayed, when they heard him say, hey, come eat with me, they understood the significance of what Jesus was asking them to do. Jesus was telling them, hey, come be with me. Be reconciled to me. Guess what? We cool. It was as if Jesus looked at them and said, hey, listen, I know you betrayed me. I know you left me when I was at my lowest, but guess what? It don't matter. It's the significance of what Jesus is saying to them. It's the reconciliation power of a meal with someone. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but I want to talk to you about the, the significance of sharing a meal and how many times in the Bible we read about the power of sharing a meal together. Did you know that in the Old Testament, every single holiday and feast of remembrance is, is, is solidified by what? A meal. As a matter of fact, the people of Israel were commanded to eat the meals and to eat them in very specific ways. And if they did not, they were guilty of sin. The power of the meal to remind the people of God of their love for them. Another thing that Pastor Drew brought out last week, I mean, another time that blew my mind was, remember where Peter was when he disowned the Lord, right? When he betrayed him. Where was Peter? At a fire. Where is Jesus when he meets him at the shore? At a fire. All these elements Jesus brings together to say, hey, Peter, I know what you did. I know what you did. Jesus is here this morning, and guess what? He knows what you did. He still wants to eat with you. He still wants to be with you. He still wants to be with you. Revelation 3, verse 20 puts it this way. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the doors, I will come in and what? Eat with that person. I will come in and what? Eat with that person. And they with me. Not pray with them, not sing songs with them, not have Bible study with them. Eat with them. Friends, there is no greater single thing that, be, that can be done to signify right relationship between Jesus and his people, God and man, or man to man, and sharing a meal. And sharing a meal. So I'll say again this morning, if you're here and you know you desperately need grace, you need forgiveness, you need reconciliation with your God and Father, hear when I say that Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And he says, if you'll open, I'll come in and eat with you. I'll reconcile with you. It'll be cool. And so our second point is this this morning. Jesus still longs for deep relationship with us. He still longs to eat with us. 
And to end here, I want to I want to share one more point of application toward this, because I think, again, because we've lost the significance of sharing a meal, we don't think about this. The next time you struggle to get along with someone. The next time you find it difficult to connect with them or, or maybe you, you have a hard conversation you need to have with them. They're just, you know, you ever, you ever meet somebody and you say, there's just something about that person I don't like. Is it just me? <laughs> that you don't like? Or that has that feeling? But if you've ever, you know what, by the way, I'm about to say something. Anyhow. Let's <laughs> Anyhow. If you find yourself in that place, right? You're struggling to connect with, with someone, struggling to get along with them. You have something against them. They have something against you. Why don't you try this? Try inviting them out to a meal. And not just any meal, though. I want you to think about the best food that you can possibly share with them. What do you love? If you can figure out what they love, think about that and invite them to share that meal. Okay? Spouses. The next time you're in a tiff, right? I'm going to say a tiff. Next time you're in an argument, this is what I want you to do. Stop right where you are. Just stop. Either order. Or you can't stop right where you are, Justin? Okay. I want you to see his face. He was like, he was like, nah, he's like, nah, I ain't stopping. So I, Ruby's not here this morning. Ruby, if you're at home, you stop because he's not going to stop. You. Okay. But the next time, I want you to just go ahead and stop. Okay, either cook or order the best meal you can think of. Whatever kind of food you guys, you guys really love eating together, sit down at the table, start eating, and then re-engage whatever that conversation is. I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet you, okay, well, I guess I can say any kind of money because ain't nobody going to really take me up on this, but I'm going to promise you, okay, I'm going to promise you, all right, that if not at least a little bit, I'm going to say it's going to be a lot more in a little bit. But if not at least a little bit, I bet that conversation is going to go better. It's going to go just a little better. As you're eating that food and those endorphins that good food brings about is happening, I promise you it's going to change your tone just a little bit. It's going to change your tone. What do they say? What do they say in premarital counseling, marriage counseling? Don't ever argue when you're what? Hungry or? Eat some good food while you're having that conversation. I promise you, 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 you this conversation will go from, man, I'm so mad to, mm, mm, uh, uh, yeah, uh, don't, don't do that, don't do that. What was it again? Right? Right, Barry? All right, amen. Amen, try, I mean, try having an argument when you biting on a rib, like a good rib, not as any, like, you, you, you got to take the rib out too long to say too many words. You just ain't going to want to say. You're just going to say, hey, man, it's, you know, you just. But the power of sharing a meal, the power of sharing, the reconciling power, don't underestimate it. There's a book that's all about the power of sharing a meal. It's called The Table by Lynn Sweet, if you ever want to read it. The power. And so as I close this morning, if. Uh, Rachel, whoever's playing, if you'd come, please. Um, I know we've laughed and we've had a good time this morning, but in all seriousness, I want to say again, I don't want to take for granted that someone here this morning is really wrestling with grace. 
This morning you've heard all that I've said and, and you can't get beyond whatever it is you've done, however far you've been or feel that you are from God. You can't get away from whatever betrayal you feel like you've committed against God, whatever betrayal you've committed against someone else. Wherever you are this morning, I want to say to you that his grace is more than enough for you. His grace is more than enough for you this morning. And you know, his grace is not just about forgiveness. It's not, maybe you're here this morning and there's something you know you need to do, you need to be doing, whatever it is, and the reality is you just can't find the wherewithal to get it done. His grace is more than you need this morning. Famous text, what does it say? It says that, my what? Strength is made perfect in your weakness. He tells Paul what? My grace is sufficient for you. His grace is more, is more than you need this morning. As we turn our hearts and our minds to the Lord's table,